When you don't go to Geico.com, car insurance can seem intense. Like breakup R&B intense. I thought you said you love the sweater that I got you. If you didn't, you could have told me. Geico makes it easy. Just go to Geico.com anytime to update or check your policy without all the extra drama. I even had a gift receipt. Welcome to Real GM Radio. I'm Danny LaRue, your host, and super happy to have you with us for this episode. This is a guest that I've wanted to have on since the early days of Real GM Radio, and that is Kevin Pelton of ESPN. I've been a fan of his almost forever, but not for the whole time, because that's actually where we start the conversation, is about his roots in basketball, starting with as a Sonics writer and then growing into basketball prospectus and everything else. So we start there, and then we move into a wide-ranging basketball conversation from some of our NBA utopia ideas to how, how he watches games and things like that. It's I, I think it's a great conversation. It's one of my favorites that we've had on. It runs an hour and 15 minutes, so hope you enjoy it. Thanks so much for coming on. Hey, thanks for having me. So I, I think a, a cool place to start with this is actually to start closer to your beginning. And so at least in terms of my familiarity with you, that starts with Sonic Central. Is that really where, where in terms of writing about basketball, where you started? You know, technically, I think the first was the uh, the forerunner to HoopsWorld.com and then Basketball Insiders, which was at that point BSCable.com. And my freshman year of college, 2001, they had an opening for a Sonics writer and I just, you know, I was like, there's no one else doing this. It seems like something I could do. I, I, that season, that season after, uh, Paul Westfall had gotten fired, Nate McMillan had been hired as his interim replacement, really kind of got me re-engaged with the Sonics after I had been a little bit away from them the previous couple of seasons, just, you know, finishing up high school and having uh, a lot of homework to do, not being able to watch every game in the same way. So it was a great time for it. Started writing there, and then the next season started Sonic Central as kind of a complement to that. Awesome. So so you were uh, a sophomore in college then when you started Sonic Central? Yep. Wow. And then, uh, so so you were there, and that, and you so you started that site. Was it you and some friends, or was it just you? Uh, the, the main other person who was involved in putting together the site was my cousin, New HTML. So <laughs> she actually built the entire site, and uh, I eventually learned it through like upkeep and maintenance and everything like that. And then we had a few other writers, people that I had known from various message boards that where people talked about the Sonics at that point. But uh, I was like the editor, columnist, beat writer, all rolled into one at that point in what now would be a blog, but that was before the term even existed because this was so long ago. Yeah, that's what I was thinking about when you're doing that because I started with a WordPress blog, which helped do a lot of the stuff because even though I started college as a CS major, I never really went into it, so I, I I wouldn't have been able to probably do that. Maybe one of my friends who I started it with would have, but that that was that would have been a whole different undertaking than, than what I did. 
And we shouldn't overstate the level of quality on this website. It, does it, does it looks, still exist? Uh, let's see. It still exists for the most part. I don't know how much you can find on it. You'd have to like know the specific URLs because <laughs> the front page now redirects to Sonic's Rising because in 2005, we started a WordPress blog with some other people writing. I couldn't at that point because I was working for the Sonics. And then that became what is now sonicsrising.com on the uh, SB Nation network. Wow, so that has a long lineage. I mean, considering for compared to most sites, I mean, there are some other ones that are around that same time, but that's that's pretty impressive. And so, yeah, so you were there, and then you started with the Sonics, was it 05? Uh, I started as an intern the following year, so my junior year of college, which okay. was 2002, and spent two years as an intern when that was all they had providing content for the website. And after I graduated, they turned it into a full-time position. For, for you? Yeah. That's awesome. Was yeah. that, is that around the time, or had you thought about it beforehand, like, this is what I want to do as a career beyond, you know, doing it during college? It, it was basically that first year I started writing as a freshman was when I began to consider it as a possible career. Another thing that happened that year, the, the forerunner to Sonic Central, and this is going way back in the archives, is uh, my cousin and I previously had put together a, an even cheaper and crappier-looking website built around the concept of encouraging the Sonics to keep Gary Payton. Nice. And, Please uh, tell me it, this was on Angel Fire or GeoCities? Uh, 8M.com. Okay. So the equivalent of that. Yeah. The lesser known equivalent of that. And uh, the Seattle PI's Sonics beat writer at that point, Ron Tillery, who now covers the Grizzlies for the commercial appeal, uh, caught wind of the site in the PI's Sonics message boards and interviewed us and did a story about it. That is one of the more embarrassing photos of me that probably exists on the internet at this point. But, uh, you know, I talked to him about, you know, what it took and, and, you know, the process of becoming a newspaper writer. And that's sort of when it became like, oh, this, this is something that might be more than just a hobby. Did you ever think about going the newspaper route? Definitely. I actually weirdly applied when he left the PI. Their B-Writer position came open, I think that was before my junior year, and I applied for that even though I had no shot at it, just kind of thinking, like, oh, I'll put my name, you know, on their radar, that, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. But, you know, once I started working with the Sonics, that was a great fit, and, you know, never really considered anything else after that until they left. Yeah, and then and then that, it, that led pretty straight into Basketball Perspectives, correct? Yeah, the timing, again, worked out really well. So Basketball Perspectives started up, the last year that the Sonics were in Seattle, 2007-08. And I was very fortunate because initially when they conceived of that site, the idea was it was going to be primarily college basketball or, or exclusively college basketball. Right. With Ken Pomeroy and John Gassaway at that point were kind of the two founding writers. And, you know, the Baseball Prospectus folks, including Joe Sheehan, who was the managing editor of Basketball Prospectus the first few years, weren't really as into the NBA as college hoops. And they hadn't gotten great results financially with the uh, the Pro Basketball Perspectives series when John Hollinger did it. So they were like, yeah, NBA, not such a big deal. But uh, the guy I think I owe a lot of credit to is Aaron Schatz of Football Outsiders was able to talk them into adding an NBA component. And we had been friends for a few years, so he recommended me. And uh, I was able to do that. I did like a column a week the first year. And then after the Sonics left – you know, basically committed to doing it close to full time in terms of output. And then uh, I, I also was able to supplement that by continuing on part time working with the uh, Seattle Storm, the WNBA team here. 
And that was a time that it was a lot harder, I'm guessing, to monetize. Like, I, obviously, the Perspective series has other forms of revenue, but in terms of a website and making money off that, that was a much harder time for that. Absolutely, especially before we went to the premium model. I don't think that they were doing a lot of ad revenue. It was, you know, kind of uh, a leading cost to sell some books on the college side since they were they were printing those at that point, and then eventually we started doing the the pro books, print on demand and, and PDFs. And it, to me, one of the things that I've loved about that, because I read Basketball basketball Perspectives at that time, is I've always been amused by that you and Bradford Doolittle were both there together, and then now you're an insider together. Yeah, it was sort of a friendly takeover. Uh, after Hollinger left, and uh, they, they were in need of some more insider NBA analytical content. Yeah, that, that definitely makes sense. And so you went over there, this 20, 2012, 2013? End of 2012. Uh, December 2012 is when uh, Hollinger left and they flew me out there. And I did not know when I first went to Bristol that he was leaving. Found out uh, accidentally in the course of it. <laughs> and then uh, was offered a position the next week. And obviously immediately accepted because that's always what I had been thinking of you know, is what I wanted to do in the long run, you know, dating back to, you know, we could go, go all the way back even further than my NBA writing. Like when I first got into statistics was reading Rob Meyer on ESPN and Hollinger kind of took up that mantle in the NBA. So, you know, it was always something that I had dreamed of doing. What was your major in college? I majored in marketing. Okay. Yeah. I stuck with like a very conservative major in, in the, uh, on the thought that if the writing thing didn't work out, I'd have that to fall back on and uh, either was interested in going to law school. That was uh, my original plan going into college before I started thinking about writing, which is uh, interesting in the context of all the lawyers who now do podcasts and MBA stats and that sort of thing. Or uh, advertising was the other interest that I had at that point. So with your, your facility with numbers, because marketing can go in a couple different directions, did you take that side of it? Like, I, I was, one of my majors was econ, and so I did econometrics and things like that. Was was that something that you were interested in at that time, or did that come later? Yeah, for sure. I mean, uh, I always was strong with numbers and statistics in particular. Uh, I didn't want to do enough of, like, the higher-level math. That didn't interest me enough to certainly major in it or even minor it. I would have minored in economics, but you couldn't do that at UW. So I ended up sticking just with marketing. Yeah, and UCLA didn't have a marketing major, but had an econ major. So it's different different tracks. But yeah, yeah. so then you went to ESPN. And how, how would you describe your change in role since you've been there? You know, it's, it's evolved a little bit, but not a ton. I mean, at first... Uh, the you know kind of sticking with the per diem theme and Tom Haberstro and I split up the uh, the five columns a week that Hollinger was doing at that point and then uh, over the next uh, last season that kind of evolved to where it was Insider Daily where all four of us uh, Insider NBA writers Tom me Amin El Hassan and the aforementioned Bradford Doolittle all split up those duties and. Uh, you know, now it looks like maybe I'll be doing a little bit more writing because of the fact that uh, Amin and Tom are such multimedia stars at this point. They definitely are. <laughs> that's it, it, and it's funny because that's a that's a different element of this business that wasn't there when, especially when you started. <laughs> no, absolutely not. I mean, uh, the concept of anything other than written words on a page at that point seemed pretty foreign. 
Yeah, I mean, even, I remember for me, even the first time I was asked to do a radio appearance, I had never even really considered that concept. And what you don't realize at that point is how hard it is. Oh, God. Yeah, it, it, it's hard, and what's crazy about it, and something we can both talk about, is that even for people who have a background in, in talking to a point, like you talked about how there are a lot of lawyers who do parts of this world, including podcasting, this kind of thing is pretty different than that. Right, because of the fact that you know you're controlling, for the most part, what you're going to talk about. In a radio interview or a podcast, for that matter, you're kind of, to some extent, at the mercy of the in, the interviewer. And I remember one of the first... Uh, I started doing a weekly radio hit with some station back in Boston when I first started at Basketball Perspectives. And I remember doing an interview one week where it was just like a complete disaster. And I, I was like, I need to think about this and prepare a lot more than I was. And then also, is with anything else, you just kind of get more comfortable over time. But the other thing you realize is... If you talk for long enough, you're going to say something stupid. So I'm a lot more forgiving of broadcasters than, than some people. Oh, yeah. And, I mean, I have a background in politics, and that happens even more there than it does in sports broadcasting. So, you know, that you have to be careful. But at the same time, as long uh, to me, as long as it fits within the flow, then it, the, the really bad stuff doesn't get there. Of course, the bigger the spotlight, the more people remember it. Yeah, and in sports, you don't necessarily have the accidental truths that uh, are Yeah, so that, that's, that's true. And also, I mean, one of the kind of hilarious parts about this business is that we make a lot of predictions and pronouncements, and while we always like to promote the ones that are that end up being good, I mean, I was tweeting out a link to that I was right on Rudy Gobert last week, but at the same time, unless you until you get big enough, people don't really remember your big misses either. <laughs> yes, that that is definitely helpful. I mean, it's it's so hard. I was actually thinking about this today. Uh, it's so hard to like know how to actively balance the hits against the misses. Like, what is a, a good success rate? I mean, there's a few websites out there that have tried kind of a pundit tracker kind of thing that is more objective and comprehensive. But it's easy to start with the position that oh, this person is always right, or this person is always wrong and then have a bunch of confirmation bias where you only remember the things that they got wrong or right. Well, and, and one thing that I think uh, that, that you do so well and that is a challenge in this is, is kind of reconciling the statistical analysis with what you see in person because you're somebody who's very talented at, at watching, you know, watching play and learning things from that as opposed to because there are some people who try to lean more one direction or the other, and that can be a challenge too. I don't know how talented I am. I feel like I'm not as strong as I was when I was covering a team on a daily basis and talking to coaches on a daily basis, which is something I really miss not having an NBA team here in Seattle. But uh, it's definitely something that I'm conscious of and try to mitigate uh, all the time, you know. And it's there's one of the challenges of doing statistical analysis is what do you do when the numbers say one thing, but you believe another. That's always a challenge with, you know, preseason projections or things like that. And my philosophy has always been, you know, you should give people the straight numbers and not put your thumb on the scale, basically, whatsoever, because that's how they trust that, you know, you're, you're giving them something that is not, it is relatively free from bias. It obviously can't ever be completely free from bias because, you know, there's certain assumptions that go into the metric or things like that that are a form of bias themselves. But, you know, there's not a specific bias uh, 
in what you're seeing numerically, but then kind of in the write-up explain where, you know, maybe I don't agree with something that the numbers say in this particular case. I don't know why the one that's sticking in my head with that is the Knicks projection from last year. I think I remember a pretty good summary of kind of where how how that number came to be and then also, you know, wh- where it could be a little bit off in either direction. The one from... Was that two from, years uh, ago? Two years ago, yeah. Yeah, where, two years ago. Where had them predicted, projected below 500 coming off the 52-win season. And, yeah, that one... Uh, and that people one, went crazy. They <laughs> did. I think people are still a little crazy. Uh, Carmelo, even, as we sometimes joke about uh, with the glitches in the computer line that he had in response to it, which was great. And it was so remarkably fortuitous that they ended up precisely at the record. I mean, that obviously had nothing to do with the quality of projection. It wouldn't have been any better or worse if they had won 36 games or 38. But the fact that they hit the number exactly was pretty hilarious. Well, and, and, it, and it, it makes you feel better, too. It's like, it, even if it is, you know, one bounce of the ball or one missed shot, you kind of sit there and go, yeah, because because then you could just kind of put your hands behind your head and just go, yeah, that worked out. <laughs> it was an interesting night on Twitter when that happened. One thing that I've had had issues with is that I got into basketball late, and I got into it almost entirely watching. And because I went to UCLA, I sat three rows off the court, and that's how I really learned the game and learned to really appreciate it. And that back then, I had so much faith in my eye. And as, as you were saying, I mean, and I live in a place that has a team, I'm covering games pretty regularly, I still don't feel like I have that sense of players that I did. Like those guys who came out of the Pac-10 back when it was the Pac-10 at that time, I felt like I had a really good sense of all of them because I saw also because I watched them a lot on TV. And I think as the universe expanded, it got harder to get as good a sense of everybody. In terms of it's just as tough, tougher to track everyone, or do you think it's also as we kind of learn more, you know, it's a classic thing where the more you know, the more you realize you don't know. I think it's both, but the other big difference is that when you're looking at college players for, particularly for the NBA, you're only looking at, let's say, four guys on a team, unless you're talking about Kentucky. So for me, if I'm thinking about, I mean, obviously with the UCLA guys, I would know, you know, I would know the Mike rolls at kind of the end of the bench and I would know, you know, how good they are. But on another team, you know, you're focusing on Andre Iguodala, Channing Frye, Robin Lopez, you know, players like that. And you don't have to think about, you think about all the other pieces but you're, you can train your eye more you know, if you're watching coverages on one or two players on each side of the ball. It allows you to watch everything they do, I think, is exactly the, the upsides of that. I don't know, though. Sometimes you can be too close. I feel like I am not necessarily very good at projecting how good UW players are going to be in the NBA. That's interesting, because I was always the opposite. I, my theory then, and of course it was also being an arrogant 20-year-old kid, was mm-hmm. I felt like if I saw somebody in person three times and watched them closely, not just they were on the court and I was there, I felt like I would be I, could, I would be pretty good on them. You know, I would have them within a couple spots. And so I actually, sometimes I've been more critical than most people on, the, on UCLA guys, and the one that stands out for me is Darren Collison. I, I said from day one that he wasn't, I didn't think he was going to be a an NBA starter. And, you know, I mean, he did for stretches, and I'm happy that he's had a long career. But then you can get into those guys. I, one of the ways that I end up missing on people is when I turn on somebody, I turn on them hard. And for me, one of the guys that I think about a lot with that is Eric Gordon. I just, I liked him a lot, and then I turned on him, and then I just pushed him way down on my board, which nobody cared about, and I felt, then I kind of realized, it's like, that was what my problem was there, was that I loved him, and then and then when I hated him, it was, he was done to me kind of in that way. 
Well, well, I think that's one of those biases that you have to watch out for is when someone disappoints you, you probably hold that against them in a way that's unfair and uh, inaccurate in your assessment. And, you know, that's one of the things, you know, to go back to the, the college projection, I feel like I, I tend to see like the weaknesses of players that I know really well a lot more than I see the strengths. And that's sometimes an issue, I think, in uh, front offices is you're so close to the players and you live and die with them that, you know, they, they can frustrate you so much that sometimes you can't step back and see the bigger picture of what they're actually providing. And the bigger picture issue also comes into play when you're thinking about how a guy would be in a slightly different system or with different talent around them. I mean, you, you kind of see that. For me, the example of that is the Warriors under Mark Jackson versus the Warriors under Steve Kerr. Some of those players, if you thought about them one way, if you had, you know, kind of pigeonholed them or whatever, you know, if you'd done that, then you had a very different view of them. And then Kerr, especially with Harrison Barnes, I'm not saying he, he brought out a lot that wasn't there. He just used him in a much better way. Absolutely. Now, what I'm curious about you saying that, did you see it during the preseason? Because we know Ethan Strauss, to speak about projections that uh, worked out well, did. I, I did. Ethan and I had talked about that before he said it, and he basically asked me, am I crazy? And I said no. And I said, I'm not, I'm not, basically the, the wording was something like, I'm not brave enough to say it yet, but I think you're on the right track. I'm curious how that's going to carry over this year in the preseason. Are we going to read too much into the preseason if someone, you know, like Chicago, who's in a very similar situation with keeping the largely the same personnel and changing coaches to someone who is much more tactically flexible offensively, if they have a really good preseason, are we going to go all in on them, and will that be right or wrong? I, I think some people will. For the, the other big difference and part of, for me, talking about the Warriors is that I why I was more critical of Mark Jackson than almost anybody is that I saw more in that team than he was getting out of them. Some people in the media and a lot of fans thought that you know, they were happy with how they were doing, and they, they were they were satisfied with that. And when I watched Stephen Curry, because the first game I covered Oracle, I think was his first game at Oracle, I saw somebody who could do more than what he was being asked to do. And that, you know, that ended up being right. I can't say, oh, it was guaranteed to happen. But with the Bulls, it's a little bit harder because the, while there are some system things they can do, they don't have that incandescent talent unless Derrick Rose becomes... MVP Derrick Rose, but we've already, we already know that that exists. Like, I don't know that he has to unlock system things, not as much individual players. Yeah, that's valid. I mean, if Chicago is going to do it, it's going to be more about depth of talent and having, you know, seven or eight really strong guys at the top of the rotation uh, more than an individual star. But it, it's always tough to say. I mean, I was someone who was a little skeptical of the decision to let Mark Jackson go just because I, I feel like so often you see a situation situation where a team is strong at one end of the court and weak at the other end and they're like okay well let's hire a coach who's good at the area in which we're weak and then we'll be good in both places and usually what happens and I think of Phoenix when they hired Terry Porter is the ultimate example of this is that you're no longer as good in the place where you were strong so that offsets any improvement in your weakness and you end up at the same level overall and what made Kerr so amazing and why I picked him as coach of the year is that, you know, the Warriors were able to maintain what they were doing defensively, even build on it, get better at the defensive end in addition to what they did offensively. And also, yeah, I mean, and the way that he ca captured guys like Draymond Green and put them in the best possible situation 
was incredibly important and something that I, I think is going to carry throughout the league a lot more now, though, incidentally, Kerr was somebody who said, you know, you kind of had to be in a certain place to do it, is the idea of using the regular season to experiment a little bit, especially if you know that you're going to be a playoff team. You know, if a lot of teams don't have the luxury to do that, and so they, they do it less, but the idea of throwing a bunch of things on the wall and just seeing what works is so important because while the David Lee situation facilitated some of the changes that they did, Draymond at center was something that I don't even think Mark Jackson would have considered unless every other frontcourt player was injured or dead. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's probably the case. Uh, I mean, certainly that's something that Pop has done for a long period of time in San Antonio. And, you know, I think there was a quote at one point that he had to Zach Lowe specifically to the effect of, in 2013, we didn't think that we had experimented enough going into the series with Miami. And then when we needed to go super small, we didn't know exactly how to do that. So then the following season, you know, they were able to plan for that a little bit during the regular season. It's uh, almost planning for an unknown. Yeah, and I, what I think ties a lot of that together and what you see with those teams is what I think is still one of the under... I guess undervalued is probably the best word for it. Undervalued attributes for player players is just passing ability. I mean, part of what makes the Warriors work when they can go in all these different alignments is that maybe other than Clay Thompson, almost everybody that they play is an above-average passer for their position. Right. I think a, a lot of people have focused, myself included, probably on the shooting element of these offenses and putting multiple guys who can shoot three on the floor, but... A lot of it is also having multiple guys who can pass and, uh, you know, that notion of the playmaking for, in addition to just the stretch for, is someone who can uh, create mismatches and, and stretch out a defense with the ability to make plays as a passer from the perimeter. And that also buys you a little bit more flexibility. I'm somebody that's believed for years that it's good to have a primary and a second capable secondary ball handler on the floor, at least for pivotal moments, just so in case I think of Curry actually in the Clippers series is a good example of how that can work if you only have one guy. But what the passing can able, enable you to do is kind of use the system as the secondary creator and buy you the flexibility because there just aren't that many guys who can do that from the two, three, and the four other than when they have a mismatch. Which is similar, I think, also to what, you know, the triangle at its best exactly. did, you know, a few decades ago, or a, at least a decade ago. And, and yeah, I think, I think that that's what you're trying to do, and that parallels in that you need the right players to really make that work. And I, the, the Knicks, I think, are going to be a great test of whether that is actually true. Right, and, I, you know, they don't have that passing. I mean, people underrate how good the Lakers' passing was in the the original 3P, and even the second deck with 3P. I mean, when you put Odom and Gasol as your four and five, those are two of the best, were two of the best passing big men in the league. Uh, the, the original team, you had Luke Walton at the three often. Uh, you know, obviously Shaq was a, a decent passer, and then Kobe at the two was always among the leaders and among shooting guards and assist rate. So you were getting assists from multiple positions, not just from the point guard and compensating for the fact that, you know, you weren't having that, that, great playmaker at point guard. And that's also why I was always so fascinated with Miami, because they're one of the only teams to have a primary and a secondary, neither of whom defend point guards, because they had LeBron and Wade together, and that was fascinating to me. And I, I kind of 
they did a great job maximizing it. I mean, you saw when Pete LeBron was there, that team just wrecked people. But I feel like they could have even, if they had had a little bit more flexibility or gotten lucky in the draft, they could have pushed the envelope a little bit more. The guy that I always wanted to see there in that one spot was Monte Ellis. Just because if you could get him without handling responsibilities, I thought that would have been really fun. I still don't know how much you want to take the ball out of LeBron and Dwayne Wade's hands to give it to Monte. Oh, yeah. I, well, I think the idea there is basically that you once the seam is already created, that he can bust it up. And he you would have to pray that he would defer to those guys. But there are two of the players in the league that I think he actually would, though Monte Ellis have it all. <laughs> yeah. Uh, the, the one aspect in hindsight that we have to wonder about is how much more might Miami have done if LeBron was a little more willing to do it now that we see how, you know, conservative, let's say, uh, stylistically, he uh, tends to prefer playing. Yeah, and if they use Kevin Love a similar way this year, I might go a little bit crazy. <laughs> as, somebody, as somebody who is, if, to use a means word, somebody who is caped for Kevin Love for such a long time, it was so weird to me to see him be on a great team for the first time in his career and then just basically be a standstill shooter. Yeah, it was really sad uh, to see him. You know, he he was doing things that he can do, but it's just a waste to have him doing those things. You know, you may as well have Ryan Anderson out there at the four. Well, and Ryan's actually a kind of a, a fun parallel with that because one of the things that makes Kevin Love so unusual is that he's a really good rebounder and a good shooter. I mean, his offensive rebounding has taken a taken a hit once he's you know, now that he's staying further away from the basket. And that was actually something, I don't know if you have any data insight on this. For me, it's hard to reconcile in point, like, I think Kevin Love is still a good offensive rebounder. He's just not in position for it anymore. Yeah, I would suspect the same thing. I mean, I think maybe if you looked at uh, contested offensive rebounding or offensive rebound rate when he was within X feet of the basket, you could look at that. I mean, we do know that players decline in terms of their offensive rebounding basically from the moment they get into the NBA, which I think a combination of the fact that, you know, probably your athleticism peaks at a fairly young age, and that's very athleticism dependent, and then also the fact that guys are slowly shifting to the perimeter, usually not as dramatically as love, but they all, they do do that over time. Yeah, and I, that was I can't remember when you wrote the piece. You can tell me if you remember it. But one of the one of the pieces you wrote that has always stuck with me is the idea of how a player peaks is basically that their athleticism declines pretty much from when they get into the league, and but it's that the skill level and the knowledge increases. So that's what fuels a peak that is a little bit later, like twenty six to twenty eight. Yeah, it's interesting. I was having this exact same conversation with a friend yesterday uh, about this topic. And yeah, I, I think that, you know, your athletic peak is probably in your very early 20s and that, you know, your skills don't necessarily start to erode until probably your late 30s. And you're looking at a combination of these two different curves and where they intersect, you know, basically is where the actual peak in terms of performance is. And after that point, you know, the decline in your athleticism outweighs the improvement you can still make in terms of your skills, experience, basketball IQ, that kind of thing. Even though his curve was obviously an aberration, I think somebody who helped that helped connect me with that concept was Michael Jordan, just because young Michael Jordan and older Michael Jordan were such different players, even though you could obviously see the connecting threads. Right. It's, it's such a clear contrast, and also because it was in an iconic Gatorade commercial. That's true. <laughs> but yeah, I, I, and so the one guy who I think about with that is Stephen Curry, and it, one of the issues that I've been thinking about with this team and, you know, talking about the idea of repeating is 
part of the question is, has he already had his best year? But the other part of it is just how was that an aberration or is that just who he is for this couple year window? I tend to lean more towards that's who he is for this couple year window, because I think that people around the country underrated how good he was in 2013, 14, when I think I had him in the top five of my hypothetical MVP ballot, maybe even third or fourth. I can't remember exactly where. Yeah, that was that was a team. I remember again bringing up Ethan Sherwood Strauss again. We we were having fun before that series started, just kind of talking offline about, oh, this is when people are going to realize how good this guy is. And that happened. The twenty it was twenty twelve thirteen that was their first playoff run against the Nuggets, right? Yeah, and I, that I, happened to happen then too. And and this was a team, and that's part of I think what has given the Warriors this strange reputation among among a group of people, whether you're talking writers or non-writers, because they were so, you know, last year for some people came out of nowhere, but for other people like me kind of, it was great, but it was, I mean, other than the fact that they had amazing health, it wasn't that far outside of their capability. Yeah, it wasn't something that came completely out of left field. It was just everyone taking a reasonable step all at the same time, basically. Right. And and so like it's you did a great podcast with with Nate Duncan about the best teams and it it's something that has really taken a while to sink in for me. It's just th- that team was special and it's also weird because the Spurs team the year before was in a very different way. Yeah. But those were two and and Miami in, in the LeBron's best year was was great in in a third way. And so like I think that 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 might be what makes it a little bit different now is that. It's not a dynasty, but these teams are of that caliber. Well, I think that, you know, in this period in the NBA, because of the fact that you see such a strict segregation between teams that are all in trying to win and teams that are aggressively rebuilding at the bottom of the league, I think that, you know, we're going to see for another couple of years here a period where there's a lot more consolidation of talent on the best teams and that those teams are really, really good and separate themselves from the rest of the league. I think that, you know, this year could be the peak of that even when you look at the way this offseason went. Yeah, I agree with you. I think that's that's definitely there. And something that has been a major factor in that for me, and we're going to see this possibly again next summer, is that basically every big guy hits unrestricted free agent on their third contract. I think that that has changed the game because they can't, there's no reasonable reason for them to choose security ahead of time. So once you get to that place and the money is, you know, it's life-changing money either way, they, they're usually getting offered more from their home place, but they're getting better choices now and they actually get to make to the point. So we, I think that's part of what led LeBron to going to Miami and a lot of other things. I think that, I think that the current system is just going to exacerbate that situation. The other interesting element of it is that guys are getting to their third contract younger. True. And obviously not as young as, you know, they would have had they came directly out of high school. I mean, Kobe was an unrestricted free agent in 2003, which was, he would have been 24 at that point, 24, 25. So that, that already existed at that point. But now you're seeing so many guys like that where, you know, they're, they're hitting unrestricted free agency in the middle of their prime. And also, I think, thinking a lot about their legacy and the need to win is part of that. And I think that's led to, you know, players looking for the situation that gives them the best chance of winning more than necessarily the, the best market uh, in a lot of cases or even their hometown team, you know, their previous team. 
and and it's also been facilitated by a lot of the major market teams poorly managing their money. And so you haven't you haven't had a chance for somebody to really have it all in a in one of those big market cities. I mean, the Clippers it worked out because they got good players, and so they didn't need to use their cap space because they had good players. But the Lakers, the Knicks, and the Nets all to me haven't used the competitive advantage. This CBA gift wrapped them a gargantuan competitive advantage, and they didn't use it, but Miami did in a, in a less great market for most players, not all players. Yeah, and I mean, we're going to see all three of those teams have max level cap space next summer. But at this point, you know, do you anticipate a one of the top five free agents on the market going to any of those three teams? I, I can't see it. I can't see it unless they can bring somebody else. And that's part of the part of what made some of these situations, I think, a little bit more poorly designed. Other than the Lakers, you know, the Knicks and the Nets, they'll get one guy, but you're basically saying, "Hey, you're we're not going to be good." You know, we're, we, you would need we would need a second player the year after that, and that's also why I and I think we were on the same page with this. I wanted the Lakers to give up everything for Demarcus Cousins. Because if you do that, if you basically give up your entire team for Demarcus Cousins, then you have two guys in the space to get a third. Absolutely. I, I don't think that that was ever a re- real option for them this summer. But yeah, they if it was, totally should have done it. Yeah, exactly. Like, I can't say, oh, you know, they get an F for the offseason because they didn't do it because we don't know if that if that was on the table, if the Kings would have done it. But I mean, even if it was murmurs that they're mm-hmm. reticent to put Julius Randle in a trade for DeMarcus Cousins, I mean, that's just ridiculous. And then who knows how much of that is posturing about making Julius Randle feel valued. Sure, and- of course. Also trying to drive the hardest bargain that they can if they do think there's any chance of making that deal. So, you know, that's an element where there's probably a lot more to gain by leaking incorrect or uh, maybe things that, you know, serve you but don't reflect your actual thoughts. One, one of the teams that I think articulates my kind of stance on the league right now is the Celtics because I like a lot of what they do. I think Stevens is a wonderful coach, but I think it's going to take a lot of luck for them to get to the level that I think their fans and the media kind of expect them to get to at this point? Uh, say people that put them 10th in the future power rankings? That would be a group of them. <laughs> I don't know. They might not actually have been there. They might have just jumped 10 spots. I can't remember. I can't, I can't remember off the top of my head either. But uh, certainly I have been driving the Celtics optimism bandwagon, so I, I am somewhat guilty of that. Well, there, I, 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 I see a reason to be optimistic, but... And if if their goal is to let's say you know make the second round of the playoffs every year, I think they're right on track for that. But to like if if their goal is to win a championship, they're going to need a whole lot of things to happen. I mean, one of the thoughts I introduced uh, when we were talking about the Celtics in an, an insider piece earlier this summer is that you know going back to that the two issues of both the consolidation of talent and then free agents looking for a place to win that there has become a lot of Matthew effect in uh, the NBA right now, which is the concept uh, to those who have more, more will be given, and to those who have less will end up with none, basically. So it's a situation where if Boston can just get a, outperform expectations this year a little bit and maybe win a playoff series, which I don't think is unrealistic, then all of a sudden if you do that, Brooklyn is a bottom five team in the league and you get a top five pick coming next summer. And then you have all this money in free agency. I, I think then suddenly it starts to present an interesting option to free agents. 
Yeah, and the the challenge there is just that Boston has had so much trouble getting free agents, but if they can also make something through a trade because their assets are so good, if they can... I think what they're trying to build to is to try to get the next James Harden, you know, trying to get the next guy that a team makes a mistake and puts on the market that never should have been there. I mean, that's the, the interesting aspect of what they're doing, is they have so many different ways that they can get a superstar if one becomes available, but it's just so hard to do. But, you know, they definitely have the trade assets, especially with these Brooklyn picks looking as good as they do right now. They definitely have the cap space. Uh, the, the only way they probably can't do it is it's unlikely that anyone on their own roster becomes that guy, uh, even as someone who capes for Marcus Smart. What, what do you think is their best starting backcourt? I've had trouble with this the entire summer. I kind of like Isaiah Thomas coming off the bench for them. I, I think that worked really well last season. Uh, the one question is, you know, I, I would like to see them reduce their uh, dependence on Evan Turner, is I think we all expect that they <laughs> this season. But the question is whether Smart's own development will be enough for them to do that, and then you can smart start Smart, Bradley, Crowder, something like that, and bring Thomas off the bench and play him with either of those two guys, starters. Yeah, I think their best five has Thomas and Smart in it. I just think they're I think they're probably their two best players right now. And they and Smart can defend twos, I think, at least enough to, to, to make it work. But I agree with you that I'm not sure even if you think that's those are your two best, I don't think that you necessarily start them. As long as your offense can stay in gear without Thomas out there, I think it's good to use him to just obliterate second units and also play, you know, he can play close to starters minutes. He doesn't have to start. That's in kind of an abstraction that some coaches have really embraced and other coaches have not is the idea of, you know, having a guy who can play those minutes, but is okay coming off the bench. And I think about, even though he did play less minutes than this, somebody like, like Iguodala for stretches or Barnes, you know, however the Warriors reconcile it, that you can, you can give a guy that, that time and have them play with starters, but not have them start. And I think the converse of that is you can start someone and not play them very many minutes, which is what I, I would like to see the Clippers ultimately do with Paul Pierce rather than the Wes Johnson experiment. Yeah, I mean, well, what, uh, okay. <laughs> this this is... Circuit court. Yeah, well, so the the issue for me with Wes Johnson is that I just don't see the there there. You know, he's he's a decent player. You know, he's also never been on a good team, which isn't his fault. No, no single, no man is an island. No player can do that. But what I don't see with him is how does he make a great team better? I mean, I think you know the argument is you put him into a smaller role and he'll become much more effective in that role, which is possible. I mean, again, as, as you said, we haven't seen him play on a good team where he hasn't been asked to do that much. But I don't think you know people like squint at him and they say, oh, you know, he's got relatively the same skills as Matt Barnes, but Matt Barnes is just way better on defense. Yeah, I mean, Wes Johnson hasn't defended basically ever, and and while he is untapped potential, this is something you can speak to too, is that. He's been in the league a long time, and he's, I believe, 28. I mean, it, it can happen for a guy to turn on the defensive light switch at that point, but I would bet a lot more on that on a 24-year-old that had skulked around the league for a couple of years than a 28-year-old. Yeah, I, I think maybe the best defense you could have for him is what, who's the best defensive coach he's played for. I, I guess Adelman is underrated in that regard. Yeah, I'm trying to remember, was, Adel, was Adelman, who were his coaches in Minnesota? Was it, was it Adelman and was Rambis there then? I Flynn played for Rambis, so Johnson came along the next year, right? 
I don't know. I can't remember the exact timetable. But yeah, but Adelman's still still probably the answer. And, yeah. Well, and that, and that gets into you talking about defensive coaches and that I. I'm having so much trouble figuring out the Lakers. I mean, they're going to be bad. I think I think that's kind of an agreement. But are they going to really do the uh, what I would call the bipolar lineup, which is have all the slow guys together and have most of the fast guys together? Or are they just going to do this intermixing and just have everybody hate each other? <laughs> I think they're probably going to have everyone hate each other. I think that's always that's the safe bet there. But yeah, I mean, because if they if they play Kobe, Bass, and Hibbert together, you know, however you want to fill the other lineups, you you can do that, and then that also gives you the ability to have a second unit that I'd actually watch, which would be exciting. <laughs> that uh, yeah, you've got to time that on the league pass so that it matches up with when Minnesota is playing their lineups. You don't want to watch. Well, yeah. So my my somebody. Who somebody who wants a lot a lot media members to league pass aficionados to love them will create a series of Twitter accounts that have that I would be willing to put text alerts on for things like that like the, like when Giannis was a rookie and then somebody did the Giannis alert account I think the Bucks actually did that yeah the Bucks did it themselves but then they ended up tweeting too much it wasn't just when Giannis was in the game and the other thing is that it, he kind of ruined it by being too good. Yeah. So he ended up being in the game all the time, and no longer was that notable when he got in. If somebody I, does I, that I, with Azonia. Yeah. yeah. I, I'm trying to think about if there's anybody else in this year's class. I mean, there were a lot of guys that were, but I guess maybe Bobby Portis, but he's not going to play that much. I would like to see it with random uh, backup centers who have come over from Europe this year. Like any time that Edi Tavares plays for the Hawks or Boban Marjanovic plays for the Spurs. Or, like or Simbuar, even though he was the year before. Yeah. Yeah, and, and yeah, I, I think that, and then for me, Bielitsa is another, I, also Minnesota, I just don't know what they're going to do with their rotations, but they have a, so many entertaining guys, and I'm completely convinced they're not going to be entertaining this year. <laughs> yeah, everyone wants so badly for them to be entertaining, and it just might not happen. I mean, I think your point that you made on Twitter recently, that they just have so many rotation guys that they probably should be competitive because of that is well taken, and if... If I think you trusted their their coaching situation a little more, you would think that that was going to happen. But it's also the kind of situation that could get challenging because it also gives the opportunity to make the wrong choice a lot of the time. Wouldn't you say their talent level on the aggregate, even if we're just talking rotation players, is meaningfully higher than the Lakers? I would probably say that, yeah. And and that's crazy considering they're so much, well, not so much younger, but their good players are so much younger. Yeah. I mean, they're... And their whole roster as a whole is uh, not younger because of the fact that they have this weird bimodal thing where they have all the oldest, two of the oldest guys in the league, and then a bunch of the youngest guys in the league. Three of the oldest guys, because for whatever reason they wanted to add Tayshawn Prince too. Is Tayshawn Prince actually is he in the top ten oldest? I I wasn't counting him as quite that. Oh, he might he might not be, and that makes me sad that he might be. Considering I remember when he was young, he was pretty young when he blocked Reggie Miller's layup. Correct. Yeah, that would have been like twenty four or something. Like, I think it was either his second or third season. Yeah, he was a talent. But yeah, I I, I think that what's going to disappoint some league pass people this year is that some of the teams that we want to be fun aren't going to be fun. But other teams, the team that I'm really excited about is Utah. Even though they're not well, from a basketball intellectual perspective, the possibility of them playing without a traditional point guard is awesome. That's something I've wanted to see. But they are a test for defensive value, and they have so many guys that are on the upside, on the on the front side of their age curve. That if it works out, they could just be awesome. And in their their case, we've already seen it 
work and be fun to watch for the entire second half of last season. So it's not like you're predicting this forward like people are for Minnesota. Yeah, I think that that's a good way of thinking about it. And people are also predicting that with the Pelicans and people who are like, oh, they got Alvin Gentry, so they're going to play Anthony Davis at center, which I honestly think they're not going to do very much during the regular season and completely support them not doing very much during the regular season. I don't know how supportive I am of it, but I agree with you that they're probably not because you wouldn't re-sign Oshik and Ajinsa both for the money that they did if you were planning to. And it, you know, it seems to be a case where Davis does not want to play power forward, and if the guy who is your entire franchise does not want to, then you probably should or does not want to play center. center yeah, you know, yeah. Well, you and should probably capitulate to his wishes, I guess. Well, and that gets into something that I've been, I, I'm thinking, writing, a, uh, kind of writing a thought piece about it. I've talked about it a little bit with Nate, is the idea of just not playing the same way in the playoffs in the regular season to save guys like Draymond at center. I mean, that's a thing you can get away with a lot more if you're Golden State than if you're New Orleans, where you're probably, I mean, maybe they end up locked into the sixth seed or something like that no matter what, and there's not really a lot of room for them to you know, jump up into the top five or I, I guess actually they'd be seventh because I'm pretty Memphis. Uh, and then also not a lot, there's a separation between them and the teams battling for the eighth spot. And then, yeah, maybe it's, you don't need to chase that extra win or two during the regular season. Yeah, I, I think it's that, but also it's just, you know, reducing some of the risk of injury and unhappiness just, just to do it. And you're right that the Warriors are a much better example of that. I, I don't know exactly what, what Kerr's going to do, but I think they will do less of it during the season because, they already know what that lineup can do. We talked about the value of experimentation, but once you have a pretty good idea of it, you want to do it enough so that you're not rusty, but you don't want to do it so much that it, if it causes undue strain on a player. And I mean, that's the challenge of, you know, going back to your original comment about experimenting, it was, you know, if you know you're going to make the playoffs. And there's so few teams, I think, that are in that position and certainly going to be in the East this year because I anticipate it'll be a really wide open battle in the East second through maybe 10th, that there's not a lot of teams that feel comfortable enough to do that. And it's sort of one of those things where it's easy to sit on Twitter and say, well, why isn't the coach doing this? Why isn't the coach playing the players, his players less minutes? But when you're actually out there trying to win games and get fight for playoff seating, it becomes a lot more challenging. Oh, completely agreed. And that was, I was actually the first question I ever asked uh, Steve Kerr was uh, at his introduction, I, I said something about you know, you come from Coach Popovich, who did the who did who rested players a lot, who rests players a lot, and who supports that. And he said, "When I have some banners, we'll talk about that." <laughs> well, and, yeah. So that, I think that's going to be the first question I ask him this year. Um, he didn't but, say multiple. He said banners, plural. He though. said he said plural, but I mean one in one. <laughs> one in one is pretty impressive, all the same. It is, yes. So what what are things? Just if I have a little bit of time. Is what players that. I'm always most excited at the beginning of a season to see the players that I'm the least sure on because, you know, you're trying to figure things out. Is that how you see it as well, that you, like, at the beginning of the season you're excited for? Like, for me, a guy like that is Porzingis. You know, I'm excited because I just legitimately don't know. Yeah, that's a – I would say that in general look at it the same way. I mean, a lot of how I watch games during the season is – specifically with an eye towards doing the player profiles that we annually do at Insider and that formerly made up the Pro Basketball Prospectus book. So I have a detailed spreadsheet with notes on most players in the league that I'm updating over the course of the season. And I know that there are some guys, because of the fact that I know less about them, that it's just going to be like every time I watch them, I'm going to have like 
two or three things I'm going to note about them. You know, um, Miritich at the beginning of last season was an example of that. Like, I knew he was a really good player based on looking at his stats and, you know, seeing a tiny bit of European basketball, but I just didn't know how he was going to be a good player. And so many things about, like, you know, his ability to pump fake and drive were new to me at that point. And so I think it'll be a similar process with, you know, Przingis is a good example. I am not as familiar with Hazonia as you are. <laughs> didn't see him in Summer League because I was covering the Utah Jazz Summer League at that point and didn't watch almost any of the Orlando Summer League. So he's kind of a blank slate to me coming in. So he's definitely someone I think of. Yeah, Hazonia, I actually watched a lot more of him his earlier years in Europe than the most recent year. I think that's just the nature of my own time because I was covering a team that was actually relevant, so I watched less European basketball. And for me, it's it's players and it's also teams because, well, the Wizards have largely similar talent coming back. How Randy Whitman manages their minutes, manages their lineups in the regular season because they're a team that's relevant. And so for me... That is something that I like to look at early because then I can kind of take a picture in my mind of it and then later on in the year just really evaluate it. And then I, and then I, I also like to give really young guys a little bit of time. You know, I, so I, I talked about Porzingis. For him, it's gonna, it's not gonna be, you know, how good is he? It's gonna be how does he move? How does he react? You know, really basic things like that. And then in, February, I'll come back to the Knicks and just, you know, take a, take another little snapshot of him. But with something you, you talked about how you watch games, do you, do you kind of go into, like, let's say it's a night that you're going to be, you're going to be watching full time. Do you kind of go into it with a battle plan or do you ebb and flow based on how the games are going themselves? Last year, I got much more strict on the battle plan. So I set the goal of watching worst case scenario. I started segregating games into halves and watching a half a game a night, basically, so that you can uh, cover as many teams as possible on a night where there are, you know, at least a half dozen games and many of them overlapping. And set the goal of seeing at least one half of every team every two weeks at worst, and most weeks tried to and got pretty close to seeing at least a half of every team in the week. So that that does require you to be, like, very specifically set out, you know, this is what I'm going to watch from four to five, then from 5 to 5.30, and then maybe come back to that game uh, for the fourth quarter, and then, you know, so on and so forth, which means that I become really aggravated anytime there's an overtime now. <laughs> was the, What team was the hardest for you to watch last year? You know, I'd be curious. I can look this up in my spreadsheet, which team I ended up watching the least. I, I don't know. It, it's probably or like most painful to watch. Most, mean most I meant most painful. Let's see. I don't I don't know last season if anyone really stood out. I feel like two years ago, Detroit was very clearly the oh, hardest yeah. team to watch. For me last year, it was the Pacers. Because, yeah. well, the George Hill, when George Hill had his renaissance, that was great. That was really exciting. But the rest of the time, I was sitting there when I watched them feeling like I wasn't learning anything. And that was hard. That was hard for me to take, especially because, for the most part, because they had Hibbert and West, they weren't playing the most exciting brand of basketball. Like, at least with the Sixers... You were learning something every time because all of those guys were so young. And whether it was terrible or it was good, it was always interesting. Totally agree. I mean, everyone, you know, says, oh, man, it's so difficult. Like, 
you know, watching the Sixers. Like, no, they were actually one of my favorite teams to watch at times last season, especially early in the year when KJ McDaniels was playing so well. And you had a bunch of those young guys you were curious to find out about, like we talked about earlier. It's when it's a team that's got a bunch of veterans and is playing a, uh, you know, relatively similar style and a not particularly fun style to watch. That's when it becomes a little bit of a slog. Like the Knicks last year. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the Knicks would be an example. At least when they got Langston Galloway, that was a plus. Yeah, that was a plus. And, and yeah, the other one for me that's always hard is when a team has a lot of players that I'm not necessarily sure are going to be relevant long-term. And so like when, when a team like the Lakers in that later stretch of the year, when they just were putting out lineups that were just not NBA players, then you just, I, for me, I can just safely write them off to that point. You know, it's I, I'm not learning anything from them. Fortunately, that was at the very end of the year when there were a lot of teams that I still wanted to learn more about. But that gets into one of the teams that I'm most excited to watch this year is the Nuggets because they just have a lot of guys that I like and they have a lot of questions because they had so many injuries over the last couple of years that we really don't know for sure how their pieces are going to fit together. No, I mean, I, I think even if they had been healthy, we wouldn't know because there's such a big change at point guard from Ty Lawson to, to Moutier. And, you know, I think that's the biggest reason they're probably not going to be successful this year. But you can certainly you know, squint and see the outlines of a, a good team outside of that position if Galloway is as healthy as he looked at the end of last season and then in the in Eurobasket. Were you as blown away by his court vision as I was at Summer League? Uh, yes, because I didn't really know, you know, I, when I saw him play, the one time I had seen him play was at the Hoop Summit in Portland uh, in 2014. And, you know, he had a really impressive game, but it was in a totally different way than he played in Summer League. It was basically just him putting his head down and going to the basket. And, you know, it was kind of like a, a slightly more balanced Tyreek Evans, I would say, is what I, that was what I had in my head of him after the Hoop Summit. And he was just such a completely different player in Vegas. Yeah, what I saw from him, because I had seen something, you know, of that vein, and I liked his athleticism, and I kind of thought, oh, if the other stuff comes even slightly together, he's going to be a good player. And then what what I saw, because I didn't watch, I don't think I watched any of him when he was in China, and what I saw from him the first time I, I, I went, you know, I think it was the first half of that game, I said, I'm planning myself and I'm not moving, was... He was making a pass ahead, and he was making decisions that not only do rookies not usually make, but 18- and 19-year-olds never make. Yeah, and especially his ability to set up, like, good shots in the corner, I thought was a, a key, that, you know, he's already looking for that as opposed to just, you know, the, the obvious open pass. And you talk about, we've talked about the importance of team passing. They have Danilo Gallinari, who I think is a very good passer for his eyes. And depending on how they manage just the rest of their minutes, because the team has a lot of question marks, they could end up being a team that moves the ball pretty well. And they're going to need that because Moutier is going to have his turnovers. He's going to have his struggles. Right, absolutely. And I, I think he'll probably end up playing a fair amount this year with Jameer Nelson together in the backcourt. That'll be fun. Yeah, especially if they go to those smaller lineups that Zach Lowe wrote about. Uh, this week in his Gallo piece with uh, him at the four, Farida, or Chandler at the four, him at the three, and then you could put Nelson and Moutier together in the backcourt and uh, Farid or Nurkic at the five. Yeah. I'm pretty high on Nurkic. I mean, I don't I don't think he's going to be, you know, a game changer, you know, in that sense, but I think he can be a very good center, maybe not immediately, but down the line. And if they can get something like that, let's say, you know, top 20 center, top 15 center, that's a huge building block for them, especially if Moutier can, at minimum, become a starter. 
And then also in the context of the fact that because they got him so late in the first round, he's going to be relatively cheap throughout his rookie contract, even above and beyond the extent to which most rookie contracts are cheap. And then also, you know, low cap hold if they are a team that has cap space, or they definitely will have cap space in the summer of 2018. But if by that point, by the end of his rookie contract, they can start to be turning the corner and like be looking to add someone that summer, I think that's where, you know, kind of their timetable is sits in my mind. Yeah, I see them as a team that could add a, a kind of a Joe Johnson, like when Johnson went to the Hawks from the Suns, that type of guy. So you're not going to, I don't think you're going to get a, you know, Kevin Durant type of guy, but if you can get that next step down and get a guy who can be just a, a, a top three player on a, on a talented team, that would be huge for them, especially because they're going to get a good pick this year too, either way. Yeah, I mean, I think that people are kind of sleepy on how good that pick is going to be. Yeah, and something, you're somebody who's obviously well-versed in the CBA as well, I'm working on a piece about this too, is this year's draft, while the quality from the people I trust who know this draft better than I do right now is a little bit weaker, these picks are going to be insanely valuable because of the structure of where they fit within the CBA. Absolutely. I mean, it's it's really crazy that... They, I mean, obviously nobody planned for this kind of increase, but then no one put in anything that could kind of deal with it where none of these salaries are growing along with the cap. Yes, you're, you're, I mean, what I'm wondering is, are, are we going to hit a point where these guys are getting below the minimum? You know, what the minimum under the new <laughs> CBA, and then will they raise the, they would probably have to raise their contracts considering the way they usually write the minimum rules that nobody can make less than the minimum. And that would decrease their value a little bit, but I mean, you're still getting a guy for the lowest you can get anything for. Well, I hadn't thought about that, but yeah, that is a definitely a distinct possibility. And this gives me a chance to throw out one of my, uh, my NBA utopia ideas. Fire away. Uh, why is it that we have salaries denominated in dollars and not percentage of the cap? I'm such a big supporter of that. And, and also, not only the, the salaries themselves, but you, you talk about the, um, the exceptions and everything like that. It would, it, everything would work better. And then you get into, you avoid a lot of the awkwardness that comes when players just the timing is such a big factor, and there are for certain guys who like LeBron who massaged it so they got it at the right point. But other times it's just you know fortune five years ahead of time that you declared for the draft a year early or a year late, and then all of a sudden you're rich. Right. There's so many random winners and losers out of it, and it also seems like you know from a philosophical standpoint, it's it makes somewhat more sense if I want to say you know star X, I'm paying you 25 percent of the cap. Like, that's easier in some ways to conceptualize it than the dollar amount. And in some ways, for if you think about the cap as being something that over that overall gets bigger, that works better for players and agents because, they, you know, if you're signing that kind of a contract and all of a sudden, three years later, league revenues go crazy, then sweet, you get a lot more money. Now, on the other hand, if league revenues go down, then it, then uh, everyone starts, the players start to get really annoyed with this setup. But I, I think that's a risk that you kind of, would be willing to take to just that's how BRI works in the first place. Yeah. Is that it's tied to revenues, so why not then tie salaries to specifically to what it's going to be each year? Yeah, and I, I think for me generally, you know, working on all the NBA Utopia stuff for Sporting News, for my general kind of concept with it is that teams are more judicious now. They're run more like businesses, so that you can open things up because you don't need to protect them from themselves as much. 
And like so, I, I some the one that that I it was a small thing in one of the pieces that I've been thinking about a lot though is the idea of why you're only allowed one option here. You know, that's it's it's not you're you're not going to force it into a contract. You never a team or a player never has the leverage to really do that. Like oh, I want every year to be a player option or something like that. But it just takes away a negotiation thing, and I think to a degree it hurts some teams because you have to make these more structured commitments, and you just take some options off the table. Well, I mean, this, the alternative workaround has been then just putting all these non-guaranteed years in there from a team option perspective. But that just helps teams. There yeah, isn't a player. There isn't a player equivalent. There isn't like a fully guaranteed option. You know, like the kind of the 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 inverse of it, I guess, would be the word. Right. Right. Yeah. And I, I mean, I guess that's why everyone, all the players got player options this summer. I mean, it's got to be an all-time record for the it, number of players it, who have that in their contract. And trade kickers, because yeah. that's the other way that you can kind of, you can massage that and, you know, kind of bridge this gap that we were talking about in terms of percentage. Like, if you did it in percentage, you would never need to use, I mean, you would never need to use trade kickers because it would already fill those gaps. Yeah, yeah. In terms of on-court, is there anything that, is there anything that you want to beat beat a short drum on, and just in terms of what, like, if you were to make a couple of changes to make it better? Uh, well, I, sh- I should probably mention uh, the the intentional foul or hackashack since I took up that position as a leader against it last season during the playoffs. Yeah, that that's definitely one. I know that you're you're we're both behind Nate Duncan in line on charges, but I know that we're I think we're oh, all yeah. in the same boat on that. But yeah, so in terms of intentional fouling. What do you think is is the best way to balance that to balance all those motives out? You know, I think making it an actual intentional foul is probably the best way to do it. And I know that there are some potential issues with that, but I just don't see many scenarios other than like if a player is injured and down in the backcourt and you need to foul to stop a play, where we should allow players to foul intentionally. I mean, obviously that's what they've been working to do with the clear path, but it's been a complete disaster because. Well, a, that rule doesn't cover a lot of in actually intentional fouls the way it's written, and then B, it leads to these super long, painful, uh, clear path reviews. And it's not called, this is something Ethan, Ethan Sherwood Strauss has talked about, it should be called as an intent foul. You know, it's, it, that, it, that's yeah. really what it is. And for me, the other, something I wanted to talk to you about, I was thinking about this actually as I was walking my dog today, is there is a lot of the NBA fouling system is structured around the idea of permitting comebacks. Because, you know, if you went to a system where you could theoretically, let's say, you could decline the free throws on a foul and you could get the ball out instead. And what I'm I having an issue with myself is I don't think that the NBA needs to facilitate that in the way that they do. You know, if a team is ahead by five with 30 seconds to go and they have the ball, I don't think that you need to give the other team an out. They, they should lose. <laughs> yeah, I guess I should have mentioned that's that's the downside. It's you, if you can't foul intentionally, then suddenly you're having to like disguise those late game fouls a lot more. And you know, suddenly if you're having to like foul someone really hard uh, so that it doesn't look intentional, does that become more dangerous? I think that's a that's a potential downside. Yeah, I mean, I'm torn on that one. I, sometimes they elongate games, particularly in college basketball. We could, I mean, we could do such a long NCAA utopia. <laughs> start with like just destroying the entire organization and starting over from scratch with something that actually is true to the spirit of amateur athletics. But that's neither here nor there. Uh, but like college games get so long at the end with intentional foul, and it's just brutal to watch for that like one in one scenario out of. 50 where a team actually does successfully come back and it's really exciting in the NBA. It's not usually as bad, but 
yeah, there's a question of how much time we're wasting watching players shoot fouls at the end of the games relative to the number of times it actually leads to an exciting comeback. But you not you not only have the time wasting, but you also kind of to me have the moral aspect. I mean it's it's taking it's making something that is very different from the rest of the game. And you think about obviously basketball is a different structure than the other sports, but no other sport has that. You know, you can't just foul a bunch of guys in soccer and try to get extra possessions. You can't foul, you know, you can't do there's nothing equivalent in baseball. And some of that is just basketball is is a distinct thing. You score a lot more and everything like that. And and it's not using timeouts like in football. In football, you have to use the same basic rules, and except for the college rules. But I think that that that's one difference. And another thing that I know that you're on, which I'm fully on board with, is changing the concept of fouling out. Yeah, it's just I think that there are better ways to punish people for fouling than not allowing them to participate whatsoever. And it's not as bad in the NBA. I think again, is the NCAA or FIBA, as we oh. saw in Eurobasket, where because of the fact that five fouls over 40 minutes, even though it's the same ratio as six over 48, there's a lot more randomness because it's a smaller sample size and then also because of the way that the games are called. And suddenly you see the referees, a bad call has this huge impact on the outcome of the game as opposed to actually letting the players involved decide it. And especially when it is, in, let's let's be polite and say, inconsistently refereed. <laughs> that's that's generous. That's nice of you. And, and so I think that yeah, it, it it magnifies every call, and especially and this gets back into charges when you see these just bad offensive foul calls, and that if you restructured that, I think that you would have just you would have less opportunity for big mistakes. And one that I wanted to, to ask you about, this is something I, I talk about, you know, offline with media people all the time, is the FIBA goaltending rule. I personally am a huge supporter of it, but I know a lot of people are pretty ardent opponents of it as well. I'm pretty agnostic on that one. I, I can see, you know, I, I see the benefit, and certainly when there's like a really close you know, play where, you know, an exciting play gets taken away, and it, it turns out it wasn't even correct in hindsight, like that gets pretty annoying. But I'm also sympathetic to the argument that uh, NBA athletes are just so superior that you'd see it too often, and it would become a much bigger part of the game than it is in FIBA play. Yeah, I agree with you. Two, two points on that. One is it encourages clean makes, which is something that I like you. So, yeah, you lose some of those, the ball bouncing all around the rim and going in. Second thing, it also makes JaVale McGee an NBA player for the rest of his life, and I support anything that makes that more reasonable. Well, uh, sadly, I'm not sure if JaVale's going to have the athleticism to do that much longer. Hey, he'd have it for at least one more year. But Drummond, I, I, I've talked about before, I think Rudy Gobert and Drummond are the two players that if you change that rule, they would just become, they would ratchet up their, especially their offensive value to a whole other level. Well, if we become co-commissioners and uh, eliminate the intentional foul and change the FIBA goaltending rules, Andre, Andre Drummond is going to become a lot more valuable. Except that he still can't make his free throws. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I don't think I've ever talked about this on the podcast, but one of my favorite stories like that, the only draft I ever covered was 2012. And one of the one of the people asked him, just when we were, you're in that media scrum, said, why don't you make your free throws? And he turned to them and gave one of my favorite answers I've ever heard. He said, I don't know, man. You know, like he said, I made a bunch of my free throws in high school, and for whatever reason in college, I just didn't. And there's a part of me that was a little bit concerned by that, but then there's another part that goes, well, I, I give him props for being honest about it. <laughs> yeah. And, I mean, sometimes that happens. Like, you saw the weirdness with Clint Capella last year where he was a 60% free throw shooter in the D-League and then came to the NBA and was so nervous he couldn't make one for, like, a month. 
and had that super weird parallel that he actually had done a similar split in EuroLeague and and in the French League the year before. Right. Yeah. Which is just uh, Clay Capella is just awesome. He had another guy who would benefit from the from the FIBA goaltending rule. We we could consider another podcast sometime where we just sit around and talk about the guys that we both really like, including Clint Capella and Jordan Adams. Yes. Well, Jordan Jordan Adams, I don't like him as much as most people think I do. I just think that Memphis had such a clear deficiency that you kind of have to throw a bunch of things at the wall and see what works. You don't you don't personally like him though. Still with the UCLA. Oh fans. oh, I like him, but I don't think he's like this. I don't I don't think he's this Aladdin style diamond in the rough. I don't think you know he's not one of those guys like let's say somebody like Rudy Gobert was for me or Clint Capella, where it's like this guy is awesome. Why don't you guys see it? Like that's a kind of a different group of player. And you know I've been wrong on some of those guys too. Those are just the two that come to my mind as just players that I just had irrational love for. Um, actually, one that I had that for who didn't end up working was Ron Steele from Alabama. I don't know if you remember him. I just Boy, thought... I don't think I do. Yeah, he was, he was on the Alabama team that nearly beat UCLA in the regional the year... I think it was maybe in the, in the second round, the year they made their first Final Four visit. Aaron Aflalo actually hit a game winner against that really weird Alabama team that I believe also had Jermario Davidson. Was was that before Richard Hendricks's time? Is that that was my Alabama? Uh, I think that was the year before. Alabama. I think that was the year before, actually. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it, it is funny though how how you have those guys and they just stick in your brain for the rest of your life. I'm sure you have them from college too. Yeah, I mean, I was having a conversation about this the other day about the uh, the Arizona 2000 the Final Four team, and I think that was what 2001 or 2002. Mm-hmm. That, I believed that the two players who were going to be the best off that team in the NBA, which uh, did a group that did not include Richard Jefferson, I thought was going to be Gilbert Arenas, uh, which is a good one, and then Michael Wright, who I don't think ever played a minute in the league. Yeah, I was I was high on James Augustine from Illinois, who was never amounted to much in the league. I actually saw him after college. I saw him play at the men's gym at UCLA, and I still thought he looked good. You know, he's just one <laughs> of those guys who who popped, and then he just never made it in the league. But yeah, I think we only have a little bit more time. Is there are there any other like when you're when you're watching you watch a, an inordinate amount, inordinate amount of basketball that you just sit there and go, oh, I like this is a small thing. I wish they would consider this. Hmm. Do you support widening the court? I I mean I think it probably would be a good thing, especially if you, it allowed you to move back the three point line in the corners because. I am a strong believer that the only way that we're ever going to curtail the increase in three-point rate is that we're going to have to move the three-point line back at some point. Or just make a four-point line so Antoine Walker comes back into the league? Well, as, as you know, uh, my colleague Tom Haverstrom absolutely driving force on that one. So uh, yeah, I, oh. I have some interest in the four-point line. I'll give a, I'll, while you're thinking about it, I'll give a small one that a couple of us have championed for years is that Shots from behind half court should not ca- should, they should be treated the same way as if you get fouled shooting a shot. So they only count if you go as as an attempt if they go in. Oh, 100% agree with it's, that. It's it's completely insane. Like that's one of those instant fan entertainment. I mean, I think back to the one that Curry hit against Memphis in the playoffs that is being prevented for a completely insane reason. The person who leads the stat crew for the Seattle Storm and, and used to do it for the Sonics as well also does this in a variety of college sports and successfully lobbied the NCAA to not count kneel downs as negative yardage rushes for the quarterback. So that kind of change is possible. It can be done. That that's one, And that's one that it's there's no cohesive reason to prevent it. 
Right. And and there are players like uh, there have been conversations I've had with players off the record that have said, "Oh yeah, that the reason that doesn't happen is because it hurts their stats." Well, it came up in the uh, Shane Battier Michael Lewis feature where Daryl Morey was saying that that's like the one thing he does that is not actually best for the team is that he won't shoot those shots from beyond half court. He is one of the players that I have spoken with about that, and I had forgotten yeah. that he said it publicly. So yeah, Shane Battier has said that. <laughs> he has said that. To me, the, the idea with it coming, again, with you with a marketing background is just making the product better in ways that don't really hurt it, you know, and, and things like that fit in. And if we wanted to get into the age limit, that's another one too. But um, it, I think that the league does a really good job. I think that they're they're on the right path. And I mean, when you start a whole thing about how it could be better, people like think with, with my stuff that, oh, he's being really critical. It's, no, I think that they do such a good job that they could just do it a little bit better. Yeah, and inevitably, you're never going to, the game is never going to be perfect. It's always going to be in a state of flux where there's going to be something that needs tweaking. Yeah, I, I think, I think that's, I think that's really true. Do, do you have it, like, so you talked about how you want to see every team, if, let's say every week or so. Do you get to, fi- do you get to kind of find some teams that you enjoy and actually get to watch more of them? I mean, I definitely have teams I enjoy, but it, it's difficult with like the Eastern Conference team, teams in the, the, uh, Central and, Eastern time zones, it's tough because there's so many of those games starting at the same time that you kind of have to rotate through all of them. So inevitably, I end up seeing teams out west far more than almost anyone else. And this year, that could be rough because most of the teams in the Pacific time zone aren't going to be good. Yeah, I'm going to really need uh, Utah is going to be have to be good, I think, and uh, at least in the mountain time zone. But yeah, it's, it's not going to be the same. Sacramento will win more games than people think. Yeah, I think that they'll be competitive this season. There, there, there is a, a piece that is coming out in the next couple of days, and one of the questions I was asked was, what is the margin going to be between the Suns and the Kings? And I said it's going to be a lot closer than almost anyone thinks. I can definitely see that, yeah. Yeah. Uh, anything else you want to talk about? Anything you want to plug, too? Because I, I know you have a lot of material coming out all the time. <laughs> yes. Uh, so next week we're beginning the rollout on the Insider Player Profiles. Awesome. On ESPN Insider. So that's, that's always my favorite thing to write all year. It's what I'm thinking about basically from the moment I finished them the previous season until they're done that year. So it's uh, a lot of work that goes into them, but hopefully people will enjoy them. Well, thank you so much for taking time and everybody should look forward to reading that. And ESPN Insider is, if you are a basketball fan, I know it's just, it's so awesome. You have, there's so many of you that do excellent work and the amount of content is incredible. Yeah, it's a, a great team, and it's fun because we, you know, are all like a team and, and good friends as well. So, enjoy it a lot. Thanks again. All right, appreciate you having me on. Thanks again to Kevin Pelton for taking the time to come on. You can read him at ESPN Insider, which, considering the amazing team that we just talked about at the end of the conversation, I, I really think that it's mandatory reading for people. And there is a multitude now of basketball content out there, but I think that's one component that should be a part of it for everyone and I learn things from everything I read from Kevin. You can also follow him on Twitter one of the best follows, K Pelton K-P-E-L-T-O-N Loved having him on, it was so much fun to have a conversation that went wide ranging I was fortunate enough to get to meet him for the first time actually at Summer League and it reflected in a lot of ways the, the conversations that we had and was thrilled with that so thanks again for coming on Real Jam Radio will keep on rolling. I actually am probably going to record another episode over the weekend, so that's exciting. And then the plan right now is to have October focus on season previews. 
So I have guests lined up. As many of you know, I do not say my guests ahead of time, so you're not going to know who. If you're familiar with who I talk to a lot, they will focus in that direction, but that make I make no promises, and things can always come up. I don't think it's going to be necessarily exclusively season previews. I have some open invitations out, and if those happen in October, I will have those conversations in October. So thank you so much for listening. Uh, also, if you have any insight, please send it to me. You can either send it to daniel.larue at RealGM, or you can hit me up on Twitter at DannyLarue, D-A-N-N-Y-L-E-R-O-U-X. I read everything. I respond to as much as I can, and I really do appreciate it. That That's what helps make the show better. Also, I have a Facebook page now. It's Facebook and then DannyLarue NBA. It compiles all the work I do in various places, so if you want to do that, if you want to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, I really do appreciate that. If you really appreciate it, if you write a review, as both my podcast and the Dunked on Basketball podcast that Nate Duncan does are in the process of looking for advertisers so we can, you know, pay the bills, that helps because the, the companies look at things like that. They look at how many people listen. They also look at how happy the people who listen are because that's a better indicator of where they should put their money. So if you would like them to put their money here, I would appreciate it. So again, thank you so much for listening. Take care and make it a great day. When you don't go to Geico.com, car insurance can be confusing. Like Swedish techno confusing. Bark, bark, meow, meow. Dance with me, purple cow. Bark, bark, meow, meow. Ooh, you lovely cow. Geico makes it easy. With 24-7 access, all you have to do is go to Geico.com and you could save money on car insurance. It just makes sense. Unlike, you know. Dance with me, purple cow. I like your moves. Run to Old Navy for revolutionary prices on summer's most stylish shorts. Tomorrow only, they're all 50% off for the whole family. All your favorite shorts, denim, linen, all of them. All shorts are 50% off tomorrow only. Run to Old Navy. Valid 630 excludes active.